Today, this morning was great. I, I apologize for being about 10 or 15 minutes late. What we did was, you know, Val, it, it's, it's just, I mean, it's, it's beautiful and wonderful and quite amazing to see how, how theologically astute and reverent and liturgical our lower elementary teachers are. I mean, I was watching them and I thought, I, I, here's what, my first reaction was, I can't wait till Emma's in this class. That was my first reaction. And my second reaction was, how come I didn't get this when I was this age? But they bring him up and, you know, um, Mrs. Yonke begins with an invocation and they all make the sign of the cross. And they know, they know parts of the liturgy that I would guess you folks don't know because it's from the daily prayer offices. And they know it all and that's just, they know it by heart. No books, nothing. They do it all. They sing the Gloria Patri. They know that during Lent, you don't say the A word. Yeah, oh, oh. Forgive me, Father, for I have sinned. <laughs> yeah, they know you don't say, I mean, they know all of that. So what we did was, we had 60 kids there and about six or seven teachers. And we, you know, we said, how many of you got sins? And they all know they've got sins. They're not, they're not so young, they don't know that. And so we know Jesus takes away our sins on the cross. So we took tissue paper, we put a cross on it. And they each came up one by one. And I gave every kid an individual absolution. And then they dropped their sins into, they gave them to the vicar, into this pot that held eight candles uh, that burned them up. I mean, that is just, and they left, and all of them were, at the very end I said, so what happened to your sins? They're gone. And the text was, as far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove your sins from you. Kids get that. So, it was, uh, I apologize, but, not really, because it was fun. So, <laughs> and it was good for them. But thank you for waiting. That, that might be the way to go. All right, would you like to start, or would you like, uh, would you like me to start? I'm happy to start. Okay, I'll start. Um, the overarching theme, at least for the past few pages, has been the idea that Jesus has a story... And he wraps you up into his own story. So if you look at page 195, page 195, first full paragraph, very last sentence. It begins at the center. That's what the paragraph begins. Very last sentence, page 195. This is, you know, this pretty much sums up the past, hey, the past um, few weeks worth of reading. So page 195, first full paragraph, last sentence. His gospel is spiritual theology. In action, a form of writing, and this is very important, that draws us into a living participation with the text. Okay? And I just want you to observe that for a second because I would, you know, I would propose to you that is completely backwards to how we often think about engaging people. Just think about your own life. And this is, you don't have to raise your hand because I, I don't want anyone to feel guilty, but just think about how often you would, you think to yourself, I've got a story. I'll, just use my, I'll use myself as an example. I've got a story. There have been good times and bad times and things that I, would, that I regret and things I don't regret and things I would make sure I'd never do again and hard times that I wish I knew better about. But I've got a story. Now, too often what happens is I take my story and I impose it on someone else and then try to help them through it. You know what I mean? You impose your story on someone else because you think your story is really what it's all about. And you try to then help them through it, which in actuality, very at, the, at its core, is idolatrous. Because what you're saying is, 
My story is what matters. And in fact, when I give you my story and then try to help you through it, I've made you, via my story, into a little god. I do. Because it's not what Jesus does. And here's why. Here's why. Because what Jesus does is completely the opposite. He doesn't impose his story first. He does, Jesus doesn't impose his story on you in order to help you through stuff. What Jesus does is he receives your story. And then he says, in return, dump out your story on me. Whatever it may be. I may not know it. I may know it. It doesn't matter. Dump it out on me and then receive my life. So it, 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 who speaks first? Too often, I think, our first reaction is, I've got a story, and even if we don't know it, we may not be cognizant of it, but I've done it, believe me. So I'll just, I'm, that's why I'm taking myself. All of you are out of the room. I'm not talking about any of you. I'm saying myself. I've got a story, and I impose that on someone else because that's the story I know how to help people through. Well, that's not the way of Jesus. What Jesus does is he says, I don't care what your story is, but tell it to me, dump it all out, and then receive my divine life, regardless of what your story is. Impose your story? You might, but um, I bet you Stephen's story may be a bit different than your story was. So here's the thing. We talked last week all about the Jesus proprium. Who's the Jesus proper to a situation? The Jesus proprium, if you understand that correctly, that there's a Jesus who's proper to every situation, removes any attempt to impose your story on someone else because it's not about you. Mm-hmm. Maybe he will use that word to, not my word, but his word that he's given. That's right. To, to draw someone else. There's a distinction, though. What you're saying is, I'm going to share my story. That's not imposing your story on someone else. Okay. So, okay, I guess then By I saying, I know what you're going through. I know what you're, without even hearing your story, I know what you're going through. Because, like with Stephen, let's say Stephen and I are chatting. Imposing my story would say, I've been in college before. I know exactly what you're going through. And he would probably look at me and say, no, you don't. But without even giving him a chance to speak, I say, I know your story. Here's your story because it was my story. And I'm going to tell you how to get through it because that was my story. Now, it's different if he comes to me and says, Pastor, I just can't believe what they do out there. at he's at Mequon. I can't believe what they do out there at Mequon. And I say, okay. That all makes sense. Now, here's, here's the life we're called to live. Here's our story. That's the way of Jesus, the latter. The former is, I don't care what your story is because I've got a story and I know what it's all about and I'm going to pull you through that using my story. So you just see, it, it's all about who does the verbs and who gets the first word. And, and he makes that point right here. What Jesus does is he see, what he wants you to do is spill out your story and then he wants you to draw you into his own story. He listens first. The first, Bruzek, gives, <laughs> Bruzek um, 
I don't know if he's done it this year, but at least with me and I think with Vickers before me, he had a list of aphorisms, and kind of like witty sayings. And every day, I mean, every day he'd give me a new one. And one of the first ones I remember was, if you speak first, you lose. Now that applies to a multitude of things. But it, but it, but apply, but applies to this as well. If you speak first, one of my one of my dearest professors ever was at the seminary or at, at Concordia Ann Arbor, and his mother died. And he was not married, but he cared for his mother, and they were like, you know, they were like best friends essentially. And I remember when she died, I I called him on the phone, and he was so angry. He was a pastor, but he was so angry because he said we got in the hearse to go to the we got in the the limo to go to the cemetery. And the pastor that was with me just wanted to talk. He just kept talking. And he said, I just need someone just to listen. Or maybe say nothing at all. Maybe no one needs to say anything. And that's where I think sometimes we, maybe we go awry. We want to have the first word. Jesus says, you have the first word, and then let me fix it all up. Okay? So which is why this last sentence, his gospel is spiritual theology and action, a form of writing that draws us into living participation. He doesn't impose his story on you. He draws you into his story. He doesn't say, uh, he doesn't say have my story, and if you don't, you're going to you know where. He says, come into my story and play within the country of the Trinity. Okay? Do you see the distinction? you see the distinction? Who's Sherry Keggy? I don't know. What's that? Another world. Okay, good. <laughs> so, like, the, the refrain is um, making it part of your story. It's called, mm-hmm. I think it's called your story. Do you know what Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Can we talk about the campaign? Sure. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I'll, I'll play it for you. <laughs> Sometime you play it for me. But I think that's, that's an important distinction. As you care for people, you know, I, I just I listened to the, to the last weeks on the internet. I've got an iPod and I put it on because I wanted to remember what I said. And when you hear that beeping in the background, that is like there's nothing more annoying than that. Yeah, exactly. Anyways, that's I think that's an important distinction, especially as we move forward in how to make disciples and make them stronger. Uh, we can't just impose our story. That's what the cat, the catechumenate, and I'm I'm harping on this because it's going to happen. <laughs> It's like they say on SportsCenter. You can't stop it. You can only hope to contain it. Okay? <laughs> it's going to happen because that's the best way to do catechesis in postmodern culture. But what that does is it says, it doesn't say, here's my story and I'm going to pose it on you. It says, tell us your story and then we're going to wrap you up into our story. Not meaning my story. I mean our story. This is a community that has a story. And that's no different than the faithful community that has a story someplace else, although our chapters are aligned a bit differently. <laughs> There's a different emphasis. Okay? But everyone has a story. And that's part of, part of coming into the church, is leaving your story at the door and saying, it's not about my story, it's about our story. And that's a faithful community, one who says, we all have a story, and it's not mine that matters. Okay? Not mine that matters. It's not about you, and it's not about me. It's about the community. So that's why Jesus says, hate your father and your mother. He doesn't actually want you to hate your father and mother, but he wants you to realize that the community that he brings is more important than even your earthly family. That's how it works. Okay? Yeah? What if you, what if you said that when you bring our stories into our stories are embraced, but our stories are redeemed and caught up into something bigger than we are? 
Yeah. I completely understand. Yeah, I do. Yeah, yes. Uh, tr- yes, that's very true. Let me say two things. First, people try to come into the church and impose their story just like you and I do on other people, <laughs> which is what's funny. I mean, they come in and all of a sudden it's about them and their story. And you, you see this even sometimes in new members who come in and feel like it's their job to somehow redeem the community. That's very strange because that's not what it's all about. We're out to redeem your story, not you ours. So that's one thing. So in that sense, it's not about your story. However, it's not like when you come into the church, you lose identity. You're still Carla, who has a multitude of stories in her own life. And you bring those in, and what the Lord says is, tell me all your stories. Tell me all your stories, and I'm going to give you my story. Which, because, And this is, this is why, at the, at the Sunday Bible study, the mystical union took six weeks. Because the mystical union is everything. It's not like he plops his story on you and, sa- and says to you, Live with your story, but now my story covers you in some abstract, non-concrete way. It's Jesus who lives in your flesh. You can't escape his story. So when you say, I have my own story, you do. And guess what? That's actually Jesus' story as well. You keep your identity, but your identity is redeemed because Jesus resides in your flesh. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. That, that, that we step in and, and personal redemption and corporate redemption right. are all a part of the same fabric. Because, and I think, yeah, and I think it's true. I mean, I, I haven't found a person yet, and you may, you know, you may disagree, but I haven't found a person yet who can honestly say, I've never been lonely and never been unloved. I mean, even, I, I have a great family, and there are times I still feel lonely and still feel unloved. And so do you, I would, I would guess. That's just, that's just who we are. And the church, the church, all the church brings is community and love. So it is, um, and that, and, and I, again, that's what the catechumenate is all about. That's what it's all about. What? Hey, I, I'm serious. Can I have that when you're done? That'll be a margin comment for Easter maybe. I, I'm serious. When you're done, don't pitch that. I want it. That's the vicar's next, next aphorism, which means they may have to go to Starbucks and buy me some just so they can. Yeah, exactly. All right, what else? Anything else? Is this all making sense? You probably could. I, I, two of the greatest. One came from a Starbucks uh, cup, and the other came from a bottle of Lagavulin scotch. You remember that? My father-in-law got it for Bruzek, and we were there drinking a couple. And on the inside, it popped open, and whatever it said, I forget what it said, was totally applied to the church. Totally. I remember that. <laughs> you can learn a lot from a, good, from a good scotch. What else? Anything else? What's that? Next two pages. Let's go. Let's do it.
Okay, aesthetic. Yeah. Let's look at it right here. Mark 8.34. How does it read? Mark 8.34. Well, essentially it does. You've heard this. And he came and said to the crowd with his disciples, and he came and he called to him the crowd with his disciples and said to them, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Remember, a disciple is just a follower. So what he does here is he says, Yeah. Yeah. Well, it says, and he called to him the crowd with his disciples. Yeah, but this is, um, you remember he's talking to a bunch of people who either... um, are still there just because it's a show or are about to leave him or in a few weeks will nail him to a cross. And he's talking, so these are, they're not all his followers yet. And what he's saying is, and here's the thing, it's, all, it's just like the church. I mean, Jesus' three-year ministry is no different than the church because there are people there that think they are his followers. And, and sometimes he just has to say, if you really think so, I mean, it's like people, it's, People who say, yeah, I'm a Christian, but I don't come to church every week. I don't tithe. I don't pray. I don't go to the Eucharist. Eventually, someone needs to say, if you're really a Christian. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. And this is just being caught up in the life of Jesus. Mystical union. Okay? Do you have something? Okay. Perfect. Um, Yeah. Yeah, that's right. But the ascetic, what it does is, yeah, exactly. What I, I think what he wants, what he's encouraging you to do is in realizing when you get away from the cares of the world, this doesn't mean you go live in the desert for six months. That's not what he's saying. But it means you give yourself time away from the cares of the world. And I also wouldn't say this, not in some sort of pietistic sense, like we don't buy cable because we want to you know, flee the, the cares of the world. There's plenty of cares in the world on normal TV with an antenna, <laughs> okay? I mean, I, I, I really have, I have very little patience for, for people that, it's one thing to say, we don't buy cable, and I, I don't care if you do or don't. It's another thing to say, I'm better than you because I don't buy cable. <laughs> you know what, you're not, and I buy cable and I like it. <laughs> so, whatever. <laughs> I mean, I, it's not, that, that doesn't make you a better Christian. But it is something to say, especially during a time like Lent, where you deny yourself or you separate yourself from the cares of the world, either through prayer or fasting or extra church services or going to confession or whatever, where you separate yourself from the cares of the world. So as he says here, yeah, where he, yeah, where he says, basically, you're opening up rooms so the Holy Spirit and the Father and the Son can all invade your life.
And, and that, yes, and that was Luther's, you know, that, you remember that was his main criticism of monastic life at the time of the Reformation was not that you had brothers or you had priests or you had nuns. His criticism was they're so concerned about separating themselves from real life that it becomes a good work. Yeah, exactly. Which is why Lent, I mean, even, even by just coming to church an extra night out of the week, that's setting yourself, that's taking yourself out of, out of the world a little bit. Yeah. Right. It's a very beautiful thing, but sometimes it's so ugly that we, we think that's not beautiful. Right, right. But then we miss the full Jesus. And yeah. so, like, there's this, you know, you're missing yeah. both and. Yeah, it's. And you a, take yourself away from community. Right. And take away what Jesus says is beautiful. Yeah, there needs to be a healthy balance. Um, what's funny is in our church, we add things at a time of denial. And, and that's, not, that's not a criticism. I actually mean it in a positive way. We add an extra crucifix in a time of denial. It's Lent. But by adding that, you're not... By adding that and reflecting upon that, you're actually taking something else out of your life. Whatever would, you know, fill that time. Now you're here a half hour a week and you get to look at the crucifix. So it's, um, you know... There needs to be a healthy balance between what you take out and what you add in and where you go and what you do. Um, because sometimes what people think is removing all the cares of the world is actually not helping at all. Well, that's what I, yeah, exactly. Not helping at all. You're, Jesus is not there. Jesus is not there or not there in his fullness. Yeah, I know. If anyone would like to donate a chair, no, we've all said that. We're not going to use, I, I don't know what we're going to use, but that folding chair is tacky. Yeah. It's very tacky. It's not bad for like seventh graders because they don't care. It's, but, you should be happy though because some of them have labels on them like acolyte, torchbearer. We didn't pull one of those out. Okay. So, you're right, we need a new chair. We, we would love something to be able to use during Holy Week to hear confession up there. <laughs> a, chance, a chancel chair from Vegas? Do you play the slots with it? Oh, okay. That'd be great. We would, we would love to borrow one for the week. The pastor. Kneeling. Yeah. It's like, it's like preschool. 
<laughs> All right, moving on. Moving on. Just, no, that's okay. Just yeah. If you come, here's the thing. All of you should come to confession during Holy Week at least, because if you've got kids in lower grades, they've all beat you to it. So there's nothing to be afraid of. Your kids have done it. If you look at it that way. Um, yeah, you just kneel up there, and there's a chair inside the chancel, and the pastor sits there. And how about the aesthetic? The second section, page 197 to 198, halfway down. The, some of this should come. Some of this should be fairly familiar, because we've. You know, we've talked about beauty now since September 8th or something like that. You remember, there are multiple kinds of beauty throughout the scriptures. But um, one thing that you'll find people do, and this is the nervousness of some folks who are very good theologians who I, I trust greatly, um, their nervousness is that talking about beauty so much will lead people to, as he says, kind of... Um, an idolizing of external beauty, where something beautiful then becomes your God. Okay? Now, I disagree. I disagree for this reason, because you remember way back when, and, and he doesn't really hint at, hint at this, but way back when, when we started the, the section on beauty, the first thing we talked about is beauty as noam. You remember that? This is from Sunday morning. Noam is beauty, which is something beautiful would be to get markers that work, which would be... Uh, it's specifically the incarnational presence okay, on the altar. It's the incarnational presence. So by incarnational presence, this Noam is actually who? Christ. Christ is the incarnational presence. Who burns up the sacrifice with fire? Jesus does. Who is the fire that follows the Israelites around? Jesus. Just like he's the rock, St. Paul says, and the rock was Christ. He's the cloud that hangs over the temple. He's, he's the blood in the mercy seat. He's the incarnational beauty, the Noam. So if you start with Noam, you're okay. If you start with external beauty, and there are different words in the scriptures, and I think he even brings this up. Um, if you start with external beauty, that's where you go awry. Because if you start with external beauty eventually you're going to get to a point in Jesus' life where something is not externally beautiful, and you're going to say, therefore, that event is not beautiful. Take, for instance, the crucifixion. If you start with beauty as something external, when you get to Good Friday, you almost have to say, that's not a beautiful event. But if you start with beauty as Noam, as incarnational presence, as Jesus, then you can get to Good Friday, and even though there's nothing beautiful about how he looks, his image is marred beyond human likeness. You can say about that, it is beautiful because the Noam is there. The incarnational presence is there. Jesus dangles from a cross, and because Jesus is there, it is extraordinarily beautiful. You think it's externally beautiful? No, I'm saying it is beautiful because it is beautiful. extraordinarily beautiful. It could be, but that's not the first word that's said. Because that's not the incarnational beauty. Noam is the word for beauty, but what it means is there's an incarnational presence. It's a thing. It's weighty. Other forms of beauty are, you walk down the streets of Paris and say, that's a beautiful dress. That's not Noam. I'll give you an example. This girl who, and I said this on, on a Sunday morning Bible study months ago, this girl who went to Lourdes for a pilgrimage, 
she came back. Part of the pilgrimage was she went there and looked at the shrine, and you can debate whether or not that's helpful. But part of it was she went and worked with young children who were dying of cancer and whatever. And she came back and she said, I used to think beauty was on a magazine, external beauty. I now realize that beauty is holding a person who is dying. That beauty is someone who is suffering with Jesus. That beauty is Jesus, she said. Not about how you look. It's not about how you feel. It's not about any of that. It's about the physical presence of Christ. And so then you look to Good Friday. Transfer that to Good Friday. There's nothing, at least for most people, externally beautiful about that event. However, the person of Christ is there. Noam is there. Which means it is extraordinarily beautiful. One is external. One is a presence. And he brings that up here with the aesthetic. He talks about the transfiguration as being something externally beautiful. That is true. It is. Jesus glows. I think it's Mark that says his clothes became white as bleach. He is, he's looked like he's never looked before. He's brighter than the star that hung over the stable. He's brighter than the Holy Spirit who descends on him in his baptism. And as Baltasar says there, you may have looked it up, number 33, rather, this beauty breaks forth from the form's interior. It comes forth, it bursts out of Jesus. It's not as though beauty shines on him. It's not as though the others around him see something that's beautiful. It's as though beauty pours out from Jesus' insides. So is it externally beautiful? Yes, it is. It's also beauty in a Noam sense because Jesus is there. Okay? That's why when we get to Good Friday, you should be able to look at the crucifix and say, that is beautiful. It's beautiful. Because Jesus is there. Okay? Yeah. You just ask your question and answer it. <laughs> no. It seems like maybe that it was. Yeah. I mean, part of it is in the seven last words of Jesus. You know, when he finally says, it is finished and the cosmos is shaken, that's, um, you know, that, that's something that would call, yeah, exactly. But that's the same guy who, if you were here on Sunday and you saw the, the picture that Pastor Buzik handed out, that's the same guy who was there probably directing traffic five minutes earlier. And all of a sudden, everything, this is how Jesus does. He shakes the cosmos because he's about to renew the cosmos. He shakes everything. The temple curtain is torn in two, and at that same time, Jesus' side is pierced. And that's why when it says Jesus came to earth, John's Gospel 1.14, he tabernacled among us. He's the real temple curtain. Boom, torn in two with the, side in his, with the spear in his side. And all of that then reverses all the wrongs that have, that have ever happened. Uh, and shakes the cosmos forever. That's how he recognizes he's the Son of God. Okay? Yeah, Donna. Well, you know, and something else that was, yeah, and that that part was, how can Jesus, when you finally see it in that kind of raw form, how can he be so loving? And it is because he's love incarnate. 
But how can he be so loving as to say, Father, forgive them for they, I mean, they know not what they do. When that picture really looks like they know what they're doing. <laughs> um, but even more than that, here's the thing that intrigued me, is that in that photo, Jesus looked utterly terrified. But if you, if you, you know, if you, I'm, I'm sure you've heard this, fear at its core is sin because it's self-regarding. It's thought about, it's thinking about yourself. So then the question arises in my head, so Jesus is terrified. He's fearing something. But most of you would say, all of you would say, Jesus isn't a sinner. However, it all makes sense when you realize that when Jesus hangs on the cross, he not only becomes sin, but he actually bears the sins of the entire world. Jesus on the cross is the greatest damn sinner who ever walked the face of the earth. He is. Luther says he's the chief adulterer, he's the chief thief, he's the chief murderer, he's everything combined into one person on the cross. So it's only normal then for someone who's got that many sins to be terrified. Yes. The same way you get forgiven is the same way Jesus does. He dies. It is, though. The same way, Jesus, the same way you get forgiven is the same way Jesus does. The person of Christ dies on the cross. But it makes sense that he's so terrified because he is, uh, you can't outsin Jesus. You just can't. Yeah, and you, you almost have to wonder, when did, the, when did the sin-bearing start? Now, Luther would say it starts at his baptism. He lines himself up with sinners at his baptism, and he, and he says, I'm one of you. That may be true. So his whole earthly ministry is one of walking and bearing sins. But, boy, that picture, I mean, I, afterwards, it's, it's so, it was repulsive to me. And that's probably a good thing. Here's why. Because it's not repulsive to those soldiers in the picture. So if it's not repulsive to you, you have to wonder if you're like those soldiers in the picture. It's repulsive. I mean, yeah, you can look at it and you can say, I know this is what he did. And you can look at it for, you know, for a class. You can do that. But eventually, you can't. I, it, it's, hard for me to, it's hard for me to pin that up and put it on my wall. It's not something I would put on my fridge. I love crucifixes. We have crucifixes. I have crucifixes all over. But that one is, it's too real. And that doesn't mean you don't look at it, but it just means you, you give it a different amount of respect and reverence than you would maybe something else. Yeah? I, I think that's part of, I was thinking that same thing at Bible study. And we try so hard to make all the crucifixions like really beautiful. Right. I mean, even the one hanging on the left side is yeah. altars, like it's an icon. Mm-hmm. And it's beautiful. It it's is. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, Abby said, and I, I actually didn't know she said it until afterwards, but she said, if I were walking by this in like an art museum, I don't even know if I'd recognize it as a crucifixion. It was so chaotic and brutal. That tells you something. People just walked by. They just walked by. That was just life. So... If you look at page 198, he has this great section here on Peter uh, beneath the, the stars there. On the road, it begins, Peter tried to avoid the cross. On the mountain, he tried to grab the glory. Peter rejected the aesthetic way by offering Jesus a better plan, a way of salvation which no one has, been, uh, has to be inconvenienced. 
And then it goes on to say, Peter rejected the aesthetic way by offering to build memorial chapels on the mountain, a way of worship in which he could take over from Jesus and set up a salvation franchise, (laughs) provide something hands-on and practical. This time Jesus just ignored him. So basically what he says is, Peter doesn't get the ascetic or the aesthetic way of life. And I wonder, you know, my first thought I wrote in the margin was, how about, how about us? But I wonder how often that, that is true. I think it's very true. How often are you too busy for Jesus or your family? Too tired? How much does, you know, how much does work wear you out that you can't come to church and fully receive all the gifts in the way that maybe you'd want to? That doesn't mean they're not there. Um, you know, how, and even spending time with your own family, that's no different than spending time with Jesus because they're all redeemed. Jesus is there. It's just like Jesus is sitting at the table right now. He's right here. He's at all of our tables. He's having fun, listening in, waiting for some heresy so we can <laughs> smote someone. Boom! Right up on the corner. That's what he's all about, though. He's all about hanging out. And so even when you're with your family, it's just like hanging out with Jesus. That doesn't mean you don't come to church, but it means you need to spend time with your family, too. Or, you know, how willing... I'm thinking about the Bible church and aesthetics and beauty. I mean, how willing, and I realize it's something external, but that if you get the person of Jesus right, Noam right, then everything else flows and it's all okay. It's when you say external beauty is more important that you get all bollocked up. But how, how willing are we to settle for something that's less than beautiful? One of the home meetings we were at back when we did the cap camp thing was the only one Bruzik didn't go to. He took a powder day that day. That was a joke. You guys can all laugh. And uh, when I walked in, I knew we might have some trouble. So I was very thankful that he wasn't there. Um, and I remember someone said, I don't know what, what country they used, but they said something like, um, in Africa, they don't have beautiful churches. How come we need to have all this great stuff here? And it was very telling because the point is not that we need to be better than people in Africa. <laughs> but the point is, in Africa, they do everything they can to make that the most beautiful space they can. We need to do everything we can to make this the most beautiful space we can. And for us, that's different than the Africans, just like it's different than someone who may live out in California, just like it's different than a church who, you know, who's not in Wheaton. <laughs> you know, it's just, it's just a different deal. But that doesn't mean we slack just because we don't think we need it. We need it. We need to do the best we can. And this is the aesthetic that he's talking about. Not being willing to go full blast because you don't think it matters. It does matter. Like yeah, exa- exactly. Right. Exactly. In, Africa, In fact, proportionally speaking, I bet you they give more. Right. I bet you they give more. There. They might. They are. But, you know, I'll give you, I'll give you an example. This, um, a classmate of mine at the seminary, Pastor Dennis Meeker, married an African woman who, was the, who is the daughter of the bishop over there, Walter Obare. You, if you ever see this guy, he's about 6'6", 320 pounds, just a massive, I mean, his skin is, so, he's beautiful. He's so African. I love it has a big crozier, has a mitre, because he's a bishop. That's what bishops do. And this is his daughter, who's a deaconess, who married this pastor. They're over there now in Africa, this large Caucasian 
Iowa guy, is a pastor in Africa. And you may have seen it on CNN. They came in, and with all this political upheaval, they burned his church down. And it was a church that looked strikingly similar to St. John. Stained glass windows, not as pretty, but stained glass windows, big building, A-frame building, burned it down. (coughs) At least the inside. Everything is burned up. And there, the pictures of him are now in this charred building with no windows and no pews, and they're having the Eucharist every Sunday because that's their place. And they're going to give everything they can to make this a beautiful space again because that's what it's all about. So, you know, that was such a, not only was it rude, but it was so unqualified and it just wasn't right what was said. But I think that's important to remember as you read this, that aesthetics do matter because we have the person of Jesus right. And how is it that, and I'm not trying to compare it to that, but how is it that when you have that sort of view, you might want to I mean, do we know how that came about? I mean, how, like, because somebody told me that the, the cross actually wasn't originally there, that they added Yeah, that they did, on. yeah. You know, and I'm like, how can you not have a cross in your church? Yeah. I mean, you should, I mean, and, you know, part of it is, is that our homes reflect us, and, you know, we try to make our homes look nice, but, I mean, I remember thinking to myself, I don't have any crosses in my house. I, I need to go get a cross. Like, how come there's no cross in my house? You know, right. I mean, but I don't have crucifixes everywhere. Right. I mean, I'll, I'll you know. Well, I'm, I don't at my home. No, I wouldn't. <laughs> No, no, there's one, but there's not a ton. No. But you know what I mean? But I, but I just wonder how that, how that was, yeah. how that came about, how they voided it. I'll tell you what I think, and yeah. then I, I, Carla should probably help, because Carla may know better than I do. But here's what I think. Here would be my guess. Yeah. Okay? It's all about Noam, the incarnational presence of Jesus. So the question is, where is the incarnational presence of Jesus found specifically today? At the font? at the altar, in the preached word, and at confession and absolution. That's, the incarn- that's where Jesus actually takes up residence and does something. He comes on your forehead at the font. He comes in your mouth at the supper. The real Jesus, the same one who died on the cross, comes in your ear at the pulpit, at the pulpit and comes in your ear at, at confessional. So, so you've got that. You're answering the question. But, I mean, here's my, so, I'm, 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 so here's the thing. If you don't have Noam right, yeah. there's no reason you'd ever want anything aesthetically beautiful. Unless it's vanity. Unless it's vanity. It's all bollocked up. If you have to have the you have to have the sacramental Jesus right, the one who comes with flesh. Right. And if you get that right, then beauty and aesthetics just flow from that naturally. He is beauty. He puts beauty into us. This was the Bible study on Sunday, the mystical union. So how we live is extraordinarily beautiful, and that includes how we, um, how we fit our churches, how we outfit our churches. If you don't have the first part right, right. the other stuff may not flow as well. Yeah. Hundreds, but he's never gone to, like, you know, where he's never had communion. 
Yeah. I, never. Yeah. And I and I there's very he's very active in his church. I mean, but and I and I, and I just I wish I would have known this when I had <laughs> this talk yeah. with him because then I maybe could have because I was trying and I'm like, well, this is what he tells us to do in the Bible. Yeah. You're you're quoting the Bible to me all the time. Right. You probably know it better than me, mm-hmm. but I'm not sure what version you're you're reading. Yeah. Right. You know? Because yeah. and I wonder. Yeah. Okay. So, okay. At, at the Reformation, what you've got is a whole bunch of Christians who go, we really want the real presence of Jesus. Mm-hmm. But you were dealing with a medieval church that that had all kinds of stuff that had lost its meaning. Mm-hmm. And then you went into that it was a church? Yeah. Well, that's all it was at that time. Yeah. <laughs> That's true. What, 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 what you have in the whole non-sacramental world is a world that, that, that came out of that tradition that said, we don't want to worship stuff, and therefore we will, we will keep this space as clean as possible so that, and, and the idea, the initial impulse was to say, Jesus is in heaven, and we don't want anything blocking us being able to worship mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's what an, the Presbyterian church had a medieval world. It's like a brick box. And when I was a kid, it was cement floors, folding chairs. We, o- we only never had anything in there unless someone would get married and they take all the flowers in. We never had flowers. We never had banners. You know, it was like the one thing hanging over the, the big box of a pulpit was the, the three rings, the symbol of the Trinity. Uh, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You get so far away from the initial reason why they got rid of it that you have all these other new things made up about it. Yeah. Um, two things, I guess. What you were saying, like my brother-in-law, their family, same way, you know, my actual heart is the same way, but the, going to the pared-down churches, you know, kind of burn it slowly. Um, 
Right. Right. Are you asking your tell? Okay, okay. Okay, gotcha. From an evangelical standpoint. Gotcha. Well, that's kind of, I'm being critical. That's the really And And of course, I'm stereotyping and I'm being kind of harsh to make my point. Or just to ask. Sorry. Okay, but in the Old Testament, all we read about when we're rebuilding Jerusalem is using the best. Mm-hmm. And then you read in Revelation, or maybe not, about <laughs> in the New Testament. Paradise is going to yeah, right. You know, like pays with gold. Yeah. And where in there do we get to eliminate all of the beauty that God has given us? It, it doesn't just don't feel like it. Right. Yeah, and even um, that's very true. We have we we have, and part of part of it you have to say is who gave. Part of the thing you have to say is who gave you the authority to take, not you, but who gave us as the church the authority to take that stuff out. And 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 um, I think Carla's right on about the Reformation. For Luther, however, his thing is that all ceremony, meaning liturgy, and and even maybe liturgy more high or liturgical than what you even know here and all the bells and whistles that go with that be retained none of that go away um, i mean obviously if people are worshiping you know a bone from so and so he would say it's probably not best but bells and incense and candles and vestments and all of that he says that all needs to be retained but the problem is like you said it just all blew up <laughs> i mean what's that it just went horribly wrong. Yeah. I mean, it was all good. He created all of yeah. it. Yeah. Exactly. And then we took it. So can we try this? Or am I going too far back? Into what you were saying earlier about tell me your story. Yeah. Okay, but don't, I don't want to burden you with my story. Can you, like, the, my friend that I was talking to who make, makes them disciples and makes them stronger. Yeah. I mean, how do you do that? Mm-hmm. <laughs> You know what I mean? Like, yeah. how would I do that? What would be the Christian way that I would participate in this? Go ahead. I, I, I guess I could help with this a little bit because I work at a restaurant with a lot of young people who didn't grow up in this. And I am desperate. It makes me so uncomfortable to think that you know Jesus would be so far out of my vocabulary <laughs> that I would reason something and I think that they know that they could never ask him to work on Sundays because I would never take up that stuff. And I think inherently people just know that that they can come to that they can come to me and ask God's work. Well why do you do that? Why do you do that? 
it's not me imposing on them, this is the way I feel, this is the right way. Because I've had people, a lot of people come to me and ask me, why is it with this person? Why do you think this? You seem like a smart person, that doesn't make sense, why would you do this? And yeah, and and that that's actually well said. It's about it's about embodying the Christian life. It's about embodying the person of Christ. Um, I'll give you an example from apologetics, just because that's what you know. Apologetics is just the defense of the faith, which is what, frankly, you're engaged in with your friend. Mm-hmm. You're trying to defend the faith, specifically the Lutheran confession of the Christian faith. Mm-hmm. Um, back at a, you know in a time of modernism, where being rational, if you didn't know, people aren't rational. You figure that out? People just aren't rational. No one, not even me, not even you. But back in the time when being rational was in and it worked, um, there was almost an imposition of what you confessed and what you believed. So the first thing you'd say is, you don't believe in the resurrection, for instance. You don't believe in the body and blood. And I would say, here's all the data. You should believe this. To which a rational would probably respond, yeah, okay, that, that all makes sense. Nowadays, if you go up to someone and say, here's all the data, you should believe this, they're going to say, I don't care about the data. I don't care about any of that. Instead, the way you approach people today is you say, tell me your story. What's your story? I mean, I lead so many conversations with tell me your story. If I don't know, if you call and say, I want to have my kid baptized, the first question I ask is, what's your story? And that's not in a demeaning way. I just mean... What's your story? Where have you come from? Do you just move here? Do you have kids? And people will spill out their story. Sometimes I can't get a word in for 10 or 15 minutes, but in those 10 or 15 minutes, they tell you everything about themselves, every problem they've got, every question they've got, everything they're really scared about, and why they think maybe they shouldn't be talking to you right now. (laughs) But the great thing is, once they've spilled it out, They've, they've, they've done everything we've hoped they could do. They spilled out their story. And what they want you to do is address their issues and their problems in a winsome, short, uh, fun, concrete way. And you say, okay, here, here's what you got. Here's how we can help you. And, and it's the same thing with your friend. Tell me your story. Because he'll tell you everything about where he grew up, what his church looked like, what he thinks, what he believes about the Eucharist, what he believes about the Bible. And you can say, let me tell you what I think. Here's my story. Here's why we go. No, no, no. Yeah. Good answer. Yeah. I said, no, there's an element of faith. Right. And you're missing that whole element. Right. You know, and unfortunately, I was a little bit more defensive because I felt like I was under attack. Yeah. But, um, yeah, I think I'll... Great practice. Yeah. <laughs> because the thing is, I think apologetics is where he's engaging them. Yeah. So those sorts of answers, I think that's perfect. Yeah. And, you know, it's funny because um, John had this similar thing happen about a year ago. A guy who went in Bible, he drives the train with him and trades cars with him on the way home every day. And he's in his uh, near 40. And he's been pestering John because John's, you know, 
a Lutheran. Right. And they, he just doesn't get it. So they've talked about, uh, you know, mm-hmm. the, the font, the altar, all this kind of stuff. He was pestering John about baptism. And how can you say this? How can you say that? How can you say that? And, and John said to him, I mean, he was like just exasperated because the guy wouldn't, yeah, wouldn't I know. take yeah, in I, any I, of this I, information that's how I was. and think yeah. rationally. And John said, People aren't rational. Mm-hmm. And the guy, two weeks later, called and said, I'm getting baptized next Sunday. Did you think so? I mean, now, he was baptized in the name mm-hmm. and everything. Over there. It all stuck. But it's, it's, it's a baptism. Right. You know? Right. And, and I just I think, you know, it might come to a point where there's something in your dialogue, even if he seems, you know, Go ahead, Catherine. Actually, it happened to Jesus. Those very same questions. You remember in John six when he's he's talking about the bread that I give is my flesh. The people there, the people, well, the people there. What's the question they ask? How? How is the question? How is the question? So when your friend says, "How is it? How?" When Jesus gets the question, "How can this man say he gives us his bread?" What does he do? He doesn't even answer the question. You can't ask how. You can't ask why. And what he does is, he says, how can this man do this? He avoids the question and he says, the bread that I give is my flesh. And what happens? The crowds leave. Well, and look at Job. When he asked why, Mm -hmm. the tirade, the God, the Father. You cannot, you cannot, asking how or why are not questions the Lord's ready to answer. Yes. (laughs) Can I take one more hand and then we'll go? Yes, one more hand. We're over. So go ahead. Well, this is kind of long. Maybe I can talk about this. Where did this dedication come from? I had a friend this weekend whose child was dedicated. Uh-huh. Instead of baptized? Yeah. Yes, I have. It's a uh, come be part of the church, but we, won't, we don't want to give you all the gifts right now. Post-Reformation. 
it, it's the same thing we've talked about with with kind of a with kind of a um, not not necessarily circumcision because that actually does bring you into the family in a concrete way, very concrete way. Um, but not with dedication. Is yeah, we want to say you're part of the church, but we don't want to baptize you because we don't know if you believe and we don't know if you're old enough yet. And we don't want to. Yeah, exactly. Let Jesus have the first word. Baptize and teach. That's what he says. Lord, remember us in your kingdom and teach us to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen. Thanks for coming.